right. Good evening, everybody. Hello. Good to have you here. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4. We've come to really the theme verses that we've chosen for the book of Hebrews, our superior and sympathetic high priest. So Hebrews chapter 4 is what you want. Once you've got it, if you're able to stand with us, once you stand for the reading of God's word, we're going to read verses 12 through 16 in Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of, whom, of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father, as we uh, think about the living and active, powerful word of God, and we think about the high priestly ministry of Jesus, our great advocate in heaven. Lord, we have the word and we have the word. <laughs> we have the living word of God, the written word of God. We have the word of God in heaven. We have uh, these two advocates, both empowering, both on our side, but both with also eyes that see to the deepest recesses of our soul. You know when I rise up, you know when I sit down, you know my thought before I think it. I can't go anywhere that you're not there. I can't hide anything from you. And yet at the same time, I, I find great confidence and, and great cheer in the fact that you know my struggles, in the fact that you know my heart. Even when I want to do the right thing and fail to do it, you know my intention in the inner man. All of us are needy people, Lord. We, are, we could say we're constantly in time of need, and you give us help. You are help for the needy. You've been a help to every generation. And tonight, as we muse on these beautiful verses, powerful verses, I pray that we'd find renewed hope, renewed strength, renewed insight into who you are and who we are in Christ. In his name we pray, all God's people said, amen. amen. You can have a seat. Our superior and sympathetic high priest, the writer of Hebrews, has been focusing on Jesus' superiority to angels uh, Jesus' superiority to Moses, Jesus' superiority to Joshua. And you could say that he has now moved to Aaron, although Aaron was the first high priest of Israel. There would be many high priests that would follow. The high priest is best known for his work on the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 16, when he goes in and offers the sacrifice for the nation and so forth, that was a critical uh, holiday for the people of God, for Israel. 
And Jesus Christ becomes the fulfillment of that high priestly ministry, which will be the focus of the writer of Hebrews from this point in the book of Hebrews all the way into chapter 7. And I'll get additional mention in chapter 10. A high priest was really an advocate, one who stood between God and the people. You could say that Moses had that role up on Sinai as he would deliver God's word to the people and the people's word back to God. And then his brother Aaron would take that role and then subsequent generations would have that high priesthood. That will be much of the focus of uh, today's uh, context and then moving forward from there. That's the idea of his superiority in the title. What you're also going to see in this small section is his sympathy for us. He is a superior high priest. He is the God-man, and yet, simultaneously, he is sympathetic with us. How is, it, how is it that he's sympathetic with us? Well, because he understands what it is to be human. In fact, I've mentioned to you on several occasions probably pretty recently, that today scholars would argue that Jesus remains human because he resurrected in a human body, that same body in which he died. He ascended into heaven. And this same Jesus, Acts chapter 1, that ascended into heaven will return in like fashion. Uh, He invited the apostles to touch his wounds to not be without faith, but to believe. Thomas, we can think of, especially in uh, John 20, touch my side, feel my wounds. It's me. A spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see that I have. And so we see these two aspects of Jesus' ministry. There's much more, or you could say of his person, but he is superior to everything. He is the name above every name, and yet he is sympathetic. He condescended to come and save us, And you could say he condescends constantly to minister to us in time of need. And that's what this is all about. The word for in verse 12, if you're tracking with me here in your Bible, I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. The word for is a connecting word, and it takes us back to the idea of rest. I thought uh, Pastor Alex did a great job last week inviting us to explore the rest of God. Notice uh, in verse 11, Let's go back to verse nine. So he says there, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered into his rest or God's rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, the exhortation now to the church, let us be diligent to enter that rest that God provides so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. And the example of disobedience that's been coming out over and over, and it's not the first time we see this in our Bibles, is the example of the wilderness wanderings of Israel. Namely, that first generation that left Egypt, uh, arrived at Mount Sinai, was given the covenant and the promises, and then went on from there. And we know that a trip that should have taken a few weeks ended up, being a wandering journey for 40 years. We've captured the reason why, the one reason that the Bible gives for their wandering and their failure to enter into the promised land is unbelief. They simply just wouldn't believe God, though they had all kinds of evidence in front of them. So the writer is gonna get into the word of God. Look at verse 12, four, that connecting idea now, taking us back to the rest of God, for the word of God, and that's a familiar phrase to, I think, all of us, 
is living and active. It's alive. The word of God is alive. And this word will take us to the word. Jesus is called the word in John chapter 1. And this word is, would be the scripture. This would be the word of God as we have it now in Old and New Testament. And what we learn about the word of God is two things right off the bat. It is alive. It's living. And you say, well, that should be obvious to us, right? What does that mean? Well, the Greek word means that it is full of life and vigor. It is contrasted to that which is dead. In the Bible, that which is dead is idols or vain things, lifeless idols. Uh, there was a story about a young man. He was in a dorm room at college with a uh, fellow uh, college student. One was a Muslim, one was a Christian. So they were dialoguing about their holy books and they agreed that the Christian would read the Quran and the Muslim would read the Bible. And I think they agreed to about a week that they would do this. And after the week was over, they came back together and the Muslim said to the Christian, that was an unfair exercise. And the Christian responded, why do you say that? He said, because your book is alive. And I think anybody who's ever experienced the power of the word of God knows what we're getting at here. The word of God is alive and it is uh, full of activity. The word active here is energes in Greek where we get our word energy. It's filled with divine energy. Why is that? Because the word of God is literally breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16, and profitable, right? It comes from God. It's alive with God's life. But there is a key here that we have to understand as it relates to the word of God. And it's found right way back in the previous section in verse 2. Read it with me. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, that is the wilderness uh, generation. But the word that they heard did not profit them. Why? Because it was not united by faith in those who heard. The word of God goes out with life and active vigor or energy. You could imagine maybe... Uh, as it moves around a room, as a preacher preaches, or as a radio broadcast goes out, or something like that, or maybe you could go way back to the first century when Jesus was preaching, and he compared the word to a sower who sows seed. And the, the profit of the seed depends on what? The ground. The ground, Jesus compared to the heart. He doesn't say that the seed needs improvement or you need to pray over the power of the seed. The seed will produce if it lands in good ground. Here's the analogy. If the word lands on a heart soft and receptive, a heart with its ears open, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that tells us not everybody had ears to hear. So a message can go out to a group like this, a group of five, a group of 50, a group of 100, a group of 500, and it can fall on different soil. The word of God is already defined as living and active. Amen? Yes. 
That's not the issue. The issue is, will it be received united by faith? That is what Jesus was getting to in the parable of the sower or the soils. That's exactly what he was saying. He was saying that the, 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 the ground that produces the crop, 30, 60, or 100-fold, is a ground that's receptive. The other grounds were hard, or they got choked off, or etc. It's interesting to think about the, the power of the word of God and to go back to, to the very first verse of Hebrews because the writer starts off the book in this way. He says, God, after 1-1 one, one of Hebrews, he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways God did speak. In these last days, how has he spoken? He's spoken to us, Hebrews 1-2, in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. And Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. I want you to see the power of the word. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. Psalm 33, 6 says, God made the heavens and the earth by his word. And here it says that Jesus upholds all things by the word. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, if you're with us in the very first study of Hebrews chapter one, we called the study God Has Spoken. If you took notes in chapter one, I've written these in my Bible. There are 10 Old Testament quotations in Hebrews chapter one alone. Let me rattle them off. Psalm 2-7, 2 Samuel 7-14, Psalm 97-7, Psalm 104-4, Moving down the page to verse 8, Psalm 45, 6, Psalm 45, 7, and verse 9, Psalm 102, verse 25, and verse 10, Psalm 102, verse 26, and verse 11, Psalm 102, 26, and 27, in verses, uh, I think it's in 11 and 12, Psalm 110 is quoted in verse 13 of Hebrews 1. What's your point, Pastor Michael? Simply this, 10 Old Testament scripture quotations in chapter one alone. The writer believes in the power of the word, amen? And it interests me that of the 10 quotations I just gave you in Hebrews one, nine of them are Psalms. And you know what I often say to people? If you want medicine for your soul, read the book of Psalms. And sometimes if you're looking simply for a devotional method uh, what is today? March 1st, right? So you could read Psalm 1 if you're ever at a loss. What do I read? You know, maybe you're one of these people who has, has done this. <laughs> you know, may it open to an applicable page for my life, Lord. And I've had times like that happen where I did that and a scripture leaped off the page. And I mean, God is gracious in that way. But I would just say this. Psalm 1 would be a good place to be on March the 1st because it's medicine for the soul. And the psalmist is real and he's authentic. And sometimes it's a psalm of a lament and sometimes it's a psalm of praise. But here's my point. The word of God will do its work in your life if you simply are uniting it with faith. Back to chapter 4. Amen? That's the one thing that is on our side. If you, if you were to say, the handle of the door is on my side, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, 
I will come in and sup with him and he with me, Revelation 3.20. Written to a church, by the way. Although I think it's a great evangelistic verse, it was written to a church. Well, when the word of God comes to your life, here's the question. Do you open the door? Do you unite it with faith? We say, well, well, Pastor Michael, what would that look like if I do receive the word of God with faith? What would that look like? Well, faith means trust, but faith is also active. Later, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 6 will say, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hear those words? That's an active faith. So when I hear the word of God, I want to be receptive to it because it's living and powerful. And I also want to run with it. Two R's. You might want to write them down. Being receptive to the word. That is receiving it with trust as the authentic word of God. And then running with it. What does it say? Shane said in his prayer, I could scribble down notes. I I do in my Bible all day long. I, I have things highlighted left and right, up and down. But I could highlight things all day long, but if I don't do them, they're kind of meaningless, at least for me, because I haven't bothered to do what the word says. Don't be merely a hearer of the word, James says, who deludes themselves, but be what? A doer of the word, right? We all know the verse. So the word of God is living and active. It's alive, it's filled with God's energy, it's breathed out by God. Look at verse middle of 12, and it's sharp. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Now I know that this room is filled with Christians who have been around the Bible for a long time, and I know that that's not the first time you've ever heard that. The word of God, it's my sword, man. Watch out, it's sharp. Look out, whoo, Now I hope that that's how you see your Bible. The sword of the spirit, Ephesians 6, 17, which is the word of God. I got my sword, man. Put it into my sheath. All right. Now, I used to be able to carry around the little Gideon's Bible. You know, it was about that big. That's before I had to wear reading glasses. Now, that thing means nothing to me. I can't can't see it. (laughs) The little pocket Bibles, right? Why do you think the writer of Hebrews said that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Can I suggest something? This is my take on it. What was the threat to the church in that day? It was the threat of the sword. Whose sword? Well, we know Rome ended up persecuting Christians, but we also know that the religious leadership of Israel was not uh, friendly to, to Christians. Some of them became converted and all of that. But... Here's my point. Have you ever wondered why I'm writing, I'm reading from my notes, the the writer compares God's word to a sword and says it's sharper than any two-edged sword? He mentions the sword in Hebrews 11, 34, and 37 in the great hall of faith. Peek with me over there just for a second. We'll, We'll get to this in a future study, but if you look at Hebrews 11, 34, and 37, the writer's trying to encourage the current uh, group of Christians who are facing some forms of persecution, and he says in 1134, these faithful ones of old quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword, 1134, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Skip down to 37. 
They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Back to Hebrews chapter 4. We're studying the book of Acts uh, on our Thursday morning men's study right here at the church in the office. And Herod had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword, Acts 12, 1 and 2. The threat of the sword may well be why the writer of Hebrews uses the image of a sword. And here's what I think is a possibility of what's going on that the group of Hebrew believers tempted to go back to the temple, back to Moses, the law of Moses, uh, to move away from confessing Jesus openly as Messiah, had in their mind a sword. They had in their mind that if I get persecuted to the point of death, then maybe I'll have to face the sword. And that doesn't sound too Exciting to me, I don't know about you, right? The, the idea of persecution, let's take it back to our modern uh, times. COVID happened. Uh, churches in California opened their door. They, uh, the government was saying, don't sing anymore. You remember these days? Don't open your doors, don't sing anymore, etc., etc. So we had to take a stand. So we opened the doors of the church. Well, we know that some pastors were put in prison. In Canada, some pastors were fined in Northern California. And there was a threat. Maybe the, the most real threat I've ever experienced as a pastor in Southern California to my preaching other than being called names or getting nasty emails or that kind of thing. And it, it was in the minds of people that if I do A, B could happen. And here's what I'm going to suggest to you that maybe the writer of Hebrews is called the word of God sharper than any two-edged sword to say, pay attention to this more than that. I know you're concerned. And, And I wouldn't just dismiss anyone who lives in a country even today who has fear of persecution. Because that fear of persecution in some places could lead to your own death. It's happened and it does happen. They say that there's been more martyrs in the last century in the world than the previous 19 centuries combined. The study was done in the previous century, but my point is this, that that is a very real image for a first century believer. And I think the writer of Hebrews may well be saying there's a sword that should concern you more. It's the sword of the Spirit. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Romans 8.35. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to the slaughter. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, for us, it it may not be the threat of a sword. It may be something else. 
It may be that someone's going to treat me different if I say I believe in the word of God or I believe Jesus is the Messiah. It may be that I'm ostracized at work or disowned by family or whatever it may be. But I think the writer of Hebrews is saying this. There's something of heavenly origin that you need to consider. The word of God. 412, it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And it's able to judge or discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God cuts the deepest. It is the cutter. It can open us up in a microsecond. A prophecy about Messiah says, he made my mouth like a sharp sword, Isaiah 49.2. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. He has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver, Isaiah 49, verse two. The Messiah has a tongue like a sword. And when his word hits my life, it cuts deep. Now, that's not always a negative. Because sometimes he does his divine surgery, and in order for me to be healed, I have to be what? Opened up. Any of you have ever had a serious surgical procedure, you know that the prospect of being opened up doesn't sound good at all. And some of you have the scars to prove it. But you know that the surgeon needs to get in there. He's got to open you up to do the surgery to repair that broken part of your body. That's often what the Lord is doing in our lives. And sometimes when we hear the word of God, frankly, the opening uh, cuts hurt. Amen. There's no other way to say it. Many years ago, I was playing in a slow pitch softball game. This was when I could actually run. My knees were actually cooperating back, back in the day. And a guy hit a gapper into the outfield, and I was on first base, and I rounded second, rounded third, and I decided to make the dash for home. And the catcher ran to the backstop. The ball had gotten by him. He picked it up. It, there was probably about, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 feet from the backstop to the home plate. And I went sliding in to home. The catcher turned around almost blindly and chucked the ball. Pitcher was covering. Pitcher missed the ball. Pastor Michael's nose caught the ball. This Italian schnoz of mine was relocated. <laughs> About an inch or two over. And I'll tell you what, I began to bleed on home plate. Uh... And I bled and I bled and I bled some more. You know when you get hit, like you could get hit barely in the nose and it makes your eyes water and stuff. Well, my nose was broken, but not only was it broken, it, it, had, it was moved over. So I was bleeding, bleeding, bleeding. Anyway, a friend of mine uh, takes me to Chapman Hospital. I'm all dirty in my softball stuff. And they, they looked at me and they're, they're like, uh, well, we're gonna call a specialist because <laughs> that schnoz needs a lot of work. That was even before this happened. But anyway, so, um, so they call this guy and he comes in in a tuxedo. He was a specialist and 
He said he had been at a dinner party and he reassured me that he had only had a few drinks. And I was like, oh, well, that's nice to know. He goes, I used to do these in the Navy and uh, I'm going to relocate your nose. And I said, oh, great. Now, prior to this, prior to his arrival, because they had to call him away from this party, I, I was bleeding so much, my buddy began to pray for me. He thought I was going to die because <laughs> there, there's a lot of blood. Anyway, so he comes and he gives me five shots to my face in strategic positions. This only hurt a little bit. And then he did one of these. <laughs> Moved the nose over, handed me a mirror and said, what do you think? And I was like, well, <laughs> mirror, mirror on the wall. <laughs> Don't lie. <laughs> anyway, it's about the best that could be done. And so uh, there was a guy, we were playing in the city of Orange, and uh, I lived in Corona and one other player. And the guy that was going to drive me home owned a Jeep that I don't think ever had shocks on it. And we drove from Orange to Corona. I had a broken nose and every bump of the 91 freeway I felt in this Jeep. There couldn't be a worse vehicle to ride back. Took a run, 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 run. <laughs> Not only that, they had stuffed so much gauze up my nose that the doctor said, there's only two things that you can't do. Don't breathe in really hard and don't blow your nose. Suffer. <laughs> and there I was in the chair, in the living room going, Ugh. Now you say, Pastor Michael, why do you tell that story? I have no idea. No, um, here's the point. The doctor had to give me some shots to numb everything and relocate the nose back to <laughs> proper alignment here. And that's so I could be well again. I could breathe. And when the word of God goes into your life, that's often what God is doing. Is he knows you've got a weak place. And it hurts. You ever been there before? Ouch. And all God's people said, ooh. <laughs> Ow. Right? And you might want to say, this belongs to you, Pastor Michael. Let me pull this out. And, and I said, no, it's yours. <laughs> That's kind of a joke. <laughs> it's yours, right? But why, why does the Lord do that? Because he's doing a work inside. He doesn't care about surface things like we do. We're impressed with facade. That's not the Lord. The Lord doesn't look on the outside. Where does he look? He looks at the heart, and therefore, that's where he does the work. Revelation uh, 2.12 says to the church at Pergamum, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, Revelation 2.16 says, repent, therefore, or else I'm coming to you quickly. I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Revelation 2.12, Revelation 2.16, both of them speak of Jesus. The word of God is able to judge. It, it is the, the greatest discerner of the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It's the most skilled judge that there is. E.K. Simpson, who did a survey of the word discern or judge, he talks about various examples. And he says, uh, he looked at Aristotle and so forth. He says, in all these examples, 
It is a sifting process that is at work when the word of God discerns our thoughts and what winnowing fan can vie with the gales of the spirit blowing through the word of God, close quote. In other words, when the spirit and the word come into my soul, it does some dividing work. It divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Uh, if you've ever studied the views on the soul, some people are trichotomous, some people are dichotomous. I won't get into that now, but in the dichotomy of the soul, it's the idea of the, you, have, you have a body and a soul. Some people say you have a body and a soul and a spirit. In Hebrew thought, the body was one, the soul and spirit were one. They weren't separated. And so the one possible view of what the word of God does is that it penetrates the impenetrable. In Jewish thought, that may be what the writer is after. Separating of uh, you know, joints and marrow, soul and spirit. Or it could be alternatively that it just goes into the deepest recesses of the soul. I remember when I first came into a Christian church and began to hear the word of God taught like we're experiencing tonight. And, and I was amazed at how many times the word of God just penetrated my life. And I was often very uncomfortable because it was calling me out. <laughs> but I realized what God was doing. There was a lot to fix in me. So it wasn't hard in a sermon, you know, for me to hit, be hit multiple times in very deep personal areas. But it was ultimately for my good. And, it, and it, sometimes it went in and, you know, it was making the call. Later, let's flip over to chapter 5 and then we'll try to move a little quicker here. In 5.11, the writer is talking about Melchizedek. And he says, concerning him... We have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you've become what? Dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of what? Of the word of God. The, the oracles of God is the word of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. Not, not a good meal in the word of God, but just like the elementary things. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of what? Practice. Have their senses trained to discern. The word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And when you get trained by it, you're able to discern good and evil. All right, back to Hebrews 4, verse 13. Now, this is more of a summary. It says, there's no creature, and I there's nothing in all creation hidden from God's sight. All things are open, and I uncovered, and laid bare, ESV has naked and exposed, to the eyes of, whom, of him with whom we have to do. Uh, all the other modern versions that I looked up say to whom we must give an account. Some scholars believe that the reference here is to Adam and Eve. And when Adam and Eve fell to sin, they, their eyes were open and they realized what? They were naked 
and they tried to sew the fig leaves together to cover themselves. And God was on the move. And then they tried to hide. There is no creature hidden from his sight. Adam, where are you? Was God's GPS on the fritz? No. It was a question of his heart, not his location. God knew where he was. Adam and Eve were exposed and we know what God does in that account. He covers their nakedness. I suppose that if we consider Psalm, or I, I should say uh, verse 13, we could see it negatively. Nobody's hidden from his sight. He sees everything I do. Or positively, he sees everything I do. Where could I go from his spirit? He knows a thought before I think it, a word before I speak it. He knows my heart. He knows my trouble. Psalm 139, search me, O God. And know me. He does. And he still loves you. Amen? Now that may be the miracle of all miracles. Our great high priest sees everything and yet he loves us because he covered us in his righteousness. All right, we'll move now to his high priesthood. Since then, therefore, now in light of these realities we've just studied, since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. That's a reference to his ascension. Jesus, the Son of God. Since we have an advocate, since we have a great high priest, he's not an average high priest, he's superior. What should we do? We should hold fast our confession. Now, the people were waffling because of the threat of persecution, because it was hard to be a Christian. What did they need to know? They didn't need to hide. They didn't need to be ashamed. And they didn't need to be afraid. Because they have a great advocate. And so do you. Amen. My little children, I'm writing to you that you may not sin. 1 John 2, 1. But if anyone sins, we have what? We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So, my little children... John might say, I'm writing and, and I'm praying that you don't fall into sin. But if you sin, and let's just answer the obvious question, Christians do sin. Well, what's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Christians feel conviction over their sin and they repent of their sin. And that doesn't mean that it always happens, you know, one after the other. David hid his sin for a year got confronted by Nathan the prophet, and then repented of his sin. Was David broken? Yes. Was he contrite? Yes. Did he know that he had offended God and God deserved to judge him? Yes. So we need to keep as short accounts with God as we can because we have an advocate in heaven, Jesus. And he is ever-living will, will learn in chapter 7 to intercede for us. Here's what we can know about Jesus, and this is all wonderful news. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize. The, the Hebrew believers might say something like this, well, this sounds good, but if Jesus passed through the heavens and ascended back to the right hand of God, how could he help me? 
How, how does he know the issue that I'm having with my coworker or my spouse or my father-in-law? How could he help me if he's up in some majestic place at the right hand of the father and he's God the son? Well, the writer answers it. He says, look, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize. That means he does sympathize. He sympathizes with what? Our weaknesses because he was in all, one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. He is not remote from us. He understands us because not only is he human, but he was tempted in all the areas where we know we are weak. Now that's encouraging, isn't it? Next time you pray, you need to know that. You need to know that when you say, Jesus, I'm in trouble, I'm a house of cards, I feel like I could fall at any moment. When you invite him into the struggle, he already knows because he already sees everything anyway. So no cover up is gonna do it right? You can do the Adam and Eve thing all day long, but the fig leaves, as soon as the wind blows, <laughs> you're in trouble. Amen? Anyway, you get the visual there? So why not take it to him? You know what we typically do? We, we think, well, I'll just hide from God for a while. No, you won't. <laughs> Because all things are open and laid bare before him. So how about this next time? How about, Lord, you know how drawn I am to do this thing right now. I want to lash out. I want to lust. I want to do this. I want to do that. Lord, you know. But would you help me? Since you know what it means to face temptation and overcome it, and since I'm more than a conqueror in you, would you give me the power to overcome? Because I'm feeling very weak. The verse said we have weaknesses. It's our weaknesses. Look at 15. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. Do you sometimes feel like the only time you can come to God is when you feel really strong? Here I am, Lord, baptized with boldness in your name. And I'm coming to pray just to get an extra overflow. But I'm already feeling empowered and baptized <laughs> and alive. Now, sometimes you may feel that way, but that's not what this verse is teaching. This verse is saying when you feel weak, then you could be strong. So you need to understand, I need to understand, he sympathizes He's experienced it. Example, Jesus knows what it means to be tired, to be overwhelmed, to be betrayed by a friend, to be denied by a man that he said he would die for him, and then he denies him three times. He knows what it means to feel lonely, to feel shame, to feel like his father had forsaken him. My God, my God. Why? So 
when you bring your list to your great high priest, Lord, I feel shame. I feel lonely. I feel forsaken. I feel despised. You go down your list. I'm tired. I want to give up. Let this cup pass from me. You can make your list. He sympathizes. What does that word mean? It means he feels the feelings. He knows the struggle. It it literally means to feel the feelings of another. All right, so the final verse. In light of this, let us therefore, that's what the language means in light of what we just learned. Let us therefore do what? Draw near. Now, I might be tempted when uh, hearing about the exposure I have before this holy one to run away, to hide like Adam and Eve did. But that's not what the writer says we should do. He says in light of who Jesus is, in light of his seeing everything, in light of his sharp sword, in light of his sympathetic heart, draw near is a phrase that means worship. Whenever we worship, we draw near. So there's different ways to draw near. Draw near is when we sing, when we come forward for communion, when we open our Bibles, when we lean into a friend in the Lord. That's all what it means to draw near. And so here's what we do. We approach the throne of grace, NIV. Here's the what we draw near. The how, we do it with confidence. The where, to the throne of grace. That would be probably a synonym for the mercy seat. And the why is to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let me run through that one more time. The what is to draw near. The how is with confidence. The where is the throne of grace, which may be the equivalent of the mercy seat. The why is to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Good news, isn't it? See the phrase, to help? That's a word, bothea, in Greek. It was especially a term used in the nautical world for frapping, F-R-A-P-P-I-N-G. That's a special coffee drink that you can get with extra frosting. No, I'm just kidding. Frapping was a process where they would pass ropes, and I think they still do it today, or cables around the hull of a ship to steady it in a storm. That's the Greek word. The single Greek word is bothea. The phrase in English is to help. It's the process of frapping. Here's the image. Running cables or ropes along the hull of a ship to stabilize it in the storm. So you may ask, and I've asked before, and I've studied this many times, how does he help? Because if I live in first century Rome with the threat of the sword, familial issues, threats of persecution, maybe I've lost income because people in my community don't want to do business because I claim Jesus is Messiah, dot, dot, dot. Well, if I'm blowing around and I feel like I got no anchor, 
Well, you're telling me I have a great high priest in heaven and I should trust him, so now what's he going to do for me? (laughs) Which maybe we shouldn't say, but that's usually what we're thinking. So how's this going to work out? What's going to happen here? And one thing that you can know straight from the language of Hebrews 4.16 is that the bank never closes and whenever you call upon him, He'll help you in time of need. By doing what? By throwing ropes around your vessel to stabilize you in the storm. What does that mean? That means he won't always lift the storm. Sometimes he will. Sometimes he won't. But he'll stabilize you in the storm. What does that mean? That means here I am going through it. I don't know which way to turn. I don't know what to do. And rather than going to something stupid that just adds another layer to my problems, medicating myself, running to pornography, responding in anger, whatever you might normally do, you go to the throne of grace and he stabilizes you. And you're like, Lord, I feel out of control. Lord, I'm blown around. Lord, I don't know what to do. And he steadies us in the storm. You know how he often does it? Right what we're doing right now, a word comes to us, we stand upon it in a fresh way, and we get stability. We often say in the church, we stand on the promises. Amen? Because the word of God is living and active, sharp, and he uses it to do his work in our lives. Father, thank you for this time we've had together to study this majestic passage to Think about how it applies to our lives to celebrate it. Jesus, we want to specifically say thank you for fighting the good fight for us, for being our advocate in heaven, for dying for our sin, rising from the dead, doing what you did for love, and your ongoing ministry. And three times in... The book so far, we've heard these words. Today, if you will hear his voice. Today, if you will hear his voice. And Lord, we've heard you speak in this passage. We've heard your word. It's a word of comfort. It's a word of blessing. It's a word of stability. It's a word of hope. And I don't think anything better could be said than thank you for who you are, what you've done for me, what you've done for us, and thank you for the stabilizing grace of God. Thank you that you don't call it a throne of condemnation, but rather a throne of grace. We're so grateful to our superior and sympathetic high priest. Amen.